I've been talking about my four practices for old people, and now a fifth practice is jumping out at me. Besides observe, adapt, let go, and accept is love, a verb. Even if you can't do much of anything else, you can love. with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome to At Home on Air, a program produced by At Home with Growing Older, conversations about experiences that matter in later life. I am Susie Stader. I am an architect and the co-founder and executive director of At Home with Growing Older. A Life Until You're Dead is the title of the latest book by writer, editor, and Buddhist teacher Susan Moon. We are so pleased to welcome Susan for a conversation and to share her insights about the home stretch, which some of us are in, and depending on the time frame, all of us are in. Thank you, Susan, for joining us. Our host tonight is Rachel Friedman, who is a clinical psychologist, a long-term volunteer of At Home with Growing Older, and also one of our esteemed board members. Again, welcome to both of you. So without further ado, Rachel and Susan, please take it away. I'm so honored to be the one who gets to ask you questions, Susan. Thank you for being here. I'm not quite on the home stretch, I don't think, but nevertheless, your book was so, so moving to me. And one of the things that I love about your book is how you talk so candidly about facing the home stretch without sugarcoating it and without pitting it. And by doing so, you really model approaching older age, the losses and the changes with openness and curiosity and dignity. And you really embrace this stage of life as having something new and fresh to offer, as opposed to a lot of the popular discourse, which is about how we can stay the same instead of how we can embrace change. In your introduction in your book, you describe yourself as being, quote, a seeking old person, and that these essays are about your ongoing discovery of being alive, of being an old human who is going to die. And a little bit later, you say, it's scary and hard to talk about, so I'm going to talk about it. Can you tell us why you wanted to talk about it, why you wanted to write this book? Well, thank you for inviting me, Rachel. And it has to do with the fact that I am old. I turned 80 not long ago. And that's old. You can't really fudge it. You know, it's very mysterious that such a thing happened to me. But these things do happen. If time goes by, that's what happened. And I wrote a book about getting old over 10 years ago called This Is Getting Old. And it was really prompted by my fears about getting old. I was doing pretty well when I wrote it. I was in my 60s, but I wanted to really think about getting old. Now, 
I have gotten old and I've crossed some invisible line, which some of you might identify with this, but I actually find it a kind of a relief now that I'm not worrying about getting old. I already am old. So, okay, here it is. And, and there is a certain amount of relief there. But overall, I'm also closer to death. And this book is a lot about accepting mortality, the very concept of being mortal, not so much, oh my God, I'm just about to die, as what does it really mean to be a human being who is going to die? And how can I kind of make friends with this idea? One of the main reasons I wrote this book was really to encourage myself and others to accept our mortality with gratitude, actually, because I wouldn't really want to be immortal. It would be terrible to live forever. And it's not just that this is the alternative to living forever, but mortality and accepting it can really help us to appreciate our life and be alive while we're living it, to notice that I'm alive and to be grateful for being alive. And the very idea of aliveness becomes such a, a miracle, really. It becomes easier and easier also to accept the natural end of things. That's what happens to all creatures. We're all impermanent. So the book is trying to bring that forward. Thank you. And you won't be surprised to hear after that beautiful response that Susan is not just a writer and an editor, but a Buddhist teacher as well. Teaches Zen retreats nationally and internationally. So that's embedded in this conversation as well. I wanted to talk to you about a paradox that you reference in your book that seems to me to be a pivotal point of the book, which is you offer the observations that you say, the nearer I get to death, the more alive I feel. The more I consider my own mortality, the less I'm afraid of dying. And later you tell a very moving story about losing a very close friend. And you say that in the witnessing of this loss, you, quote, passed from life into more life. And to me, that was a really profound thing to read. Can you say a little bit more about this paradox of how you passed from life to more life? Well, that is a particular experience being with somebody I love who's dying. I kind of had that two other times that I was with someone who died, my mother and another friend. But the feeling that, okay, this person is moving on and their passage is a passage for me too. being with them and witnessing their death. I experienced it as a passage that, wow, I am still alive. And it was almost as if I felt that I owed it to her to be alive. She was dying. She couldn't be alive anymore. She wouldn't have wanted me to say, oh, well, I guess I'll just throw in the towel and not do anything anymore. So it was my job to keep on being alive, almost out of loyalty to her or to my mother when I was with her when she died. The feeling of being alive, not to say it's a responsibility, but just that it's, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's an amazing coincidence that it happened that I was born. And so, wow, here I am. I read into it as well that having seen death that close, you appreciate the beauty of life that much more. Yes, I think that's really true. And I also want to say it's not because death is so horrible and life is so wonderful and I'm alive and want to be awful when I'm dead. It's an acceptance of dying itself, of seeing that this is a flow and that I flowed into life and I'm going to flow out of it. 
and I don't know when, the same door that I came in when I was born is the door that I'm going to go out of and that we all make that passage. So I don't want to be fighting against it. Well, Susan's writing is so beautiful that I think we should hear some of it. Okay. Well, I'm going to start by reading from the first chapter of the book, which is called Joyful Effort. When my son Sandy was five, he was a big Star Wars fan. For a while, he drew many pictures of lightsabers, and the exhortation, May the Force be with you, was often heard around our house. One day, Sandy told me, When you love somebody, you can feel the love coming straight out of your heart in a line, like a lightsaber, and it touches the other person. This image cheers me still. Buddhist teachings list various virtues you can cultivate to help you free yourself and other beings from suffering. My current favorite, the one I'm working on at the moment, is joyful effort, or virya in Sanskrit. It's a good quality to cultivate at any age, and especially good for someone who has reached the age when you meet a lot of jars you can't open. You can still have joyful effort, even if you can't get at the apricot jam. Joyful effort is not about muscle power. Joyful effort doesn't care about age. I'm not too old to make an effort, nor too old to feel joy. I think of virya as a kind of life force like qi in Chinese medicine. It's vitality itself, the very thing a corpse is lacking. It comes out of us toward other people and everything around us and connects us. It's what Sandy was talking about. Joyful effort, the lightsaber of love. Joyful effort doesn't depend on good health. If you're alive, then joyful effort is possible. Sickness and old age don't necessarily take away your deep vigor. You can be fully alive as long as you are alive. Later in the chapter, I talk about going on the Camino pilgrimage route in Spain, which I did 10 years ago. As it happened, I had signed up to do the trip with a friend who was organizing it for her 60th birthday with a group of friends. But after I'd signed up for the trip, I needed to have both my knees replaced. So I had this double knee surgery six months before the trip was going, and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to go, but she encouraged me to come. We had a bus that accompanied us for the two weeks of our trip. Each day, we rode a little bit of the ways on the bus and walked part of the way. People could ride as much or as little as they wanted to. The bus gave me a safety cushion. So anyway, this is into the story about the Camino. Each day, the path unrolled before me. We walked mostly in silence, singly, in twos, in threes, each at our own pace. I was always the last one of our group, and often someone walked slowly with me. With each succeeding day, I rode the bus a little less and walked a little more, and by the last day, I walked seven miles on my new knees. It wasn't just the mileage that brought me joy. It was the sense of being on a pilgrimage route with other pilgrims from all over the world. The route was not crowded, and often there was no one else in sight, but we were all going the same direction, uphill and down, calling out, When Camino! literally, good road, as we passed by other pilgrims, or more often, as they passed us by. Most people were dedicating their journey to something meaningful to them, 
to someone who had died, for example, or to healing a relationship or in gratitude for a recovery of some kind. One day on the Camino, my friend Melody was walking with me on a dirt trail through fields of fresh-cut hay that made the air smell delicious. Big bales punctuated the gold stubble, and dark gray clouds lay beyond the fields in every direction. The storm came on suddenly. The wind drove the rain horizontally into our faces and whipped our ponchos around us. My glasses were spattered with rain, so I couldn't see clearly. We had to shout to hear each other above the howl of the wind. It was hard work to keep walking, but there was nothing else to do. I was nowhere but on that path, in that place. No doubts, no wondering, why did I ever come on this stupid trip? No, I was engaged in breathing and stepping. At one point, I had to pee. Other pilgrims were coming along behind us, so we struck out into the middle of the field and hid behind a giant hay bale while Melody stood to my windward. I managed somehow to get the right number of layers pulled down under my loudly flapping poncho in order to pee in the storm, and then we walked on. New knees, cold rain, old friend in Spain. And then one more piece from this chapter. One of the heroes of my life is Fannie Lou Hamer, a black sharecropper in Mississippi who became a leader of the civil rights movement in the early 60s. I met her when I went to Mississippi as a volunteer to help with voter registration in 1964. I was young and impressionable, and my heart was broken open by the racist persecution I saw in Mississippi beyond anything I ever could have imagined in my sheltered and privileged life in New England. Fannie Lou Hamer had risked her life over and over as she worked for voting rights and other basic rights for Black people. She was beaten almost to death in jail in an assault deliberately arranged by the guards, and she never fully recovered her health, but this didn't stop her. I thought Fannie Lou Hamer was the bravest person I had ever met. She didn't know me, but I knew her. At meetings, as we stood in a big circle, she often led us in singing, we are not afraid, we sang along with her, even though we were. She was short and stout, and when she sang, her face, scarred by blackjacks, was beaded with sweat from Mississippi summer heat and her own ardor, and her voice came out of her like light, and that was her signature song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. Lightsaber of Love Fannie Lou Hamer gave me that song and that energy that I could carry with me the rest of my life. She was pure birya. I could say to myself that I'm not nearly as brave as Fannie Lou Hamer was, but that's not the point. I doubt that Fannie Lou Hamer was telling herself how brave she was. She was forgetting herself and shining. Joyful effort can't be weighed or measured. It comes forth not just when you are afraid of doing something difficult. Enthusiastic energy, which is another translation, comes forth when you are discovering the joy of your life. It's a quality you can foster. And then, if all goes well, it gathers momentum and fosters itself. It blows away obstructions and brushes away distractions. Virya fuels enthusiasm for the life I'm living, which includes getting older. Thank you 
Sue. That's so beautiful. And I love that concept because the energy that we talk about usually is one that assumes robust health and like marathon running. And this is just such a very different concept to wrap our hands around and then try to grow at any age. In the best interest of time, I will ask if anybody has questions for Sue or experience to share. Well, I have to admit, I wrote something for Susan when you were talking about walking the Camino and you were able to walk more every day and how amazing that felt. I'm always afraid that when I lose physical strength, I don't know where to get strength from because I think feeling physically strong is such an intoxicating thing. And I'm a runner, so if I can't run anymore, I'm wondering where to draw strength from. Well, that's a challenging question, and I think it's a very real question. Enthusiastic effort or joyful effort doesn't mean that we'll be able to keep on running until we die, obviously. Physical strength and physical health probably will ebb a bit, and probably if you live a long time, you will not be able to keep running till the very end of your life. But the other thing I'm going to read is about adapting to the changes that come to us as we age. And I think that is essential, that we also have to learn to adapt and make the best we can of what our losses are and see if there's some gains that are hidden in the losses. But that doesn't change the fact that this quality of joyful effort can still be brought forward. And I haven't yet been really put to the test myself because I still can hike quite vigorously and I love walking. I may be a little bit less eager about how easy it is to summon up joyful effort when I can't walk uphill anymore. But I hope that I'll be able to make an effort and feel joy about something that I love doing, even if it isn't that same thing. Yes. Thank you. I think it's an interesting test. So Patrick Bell asks for comments. I'm a self-taught Taoist and my son is a self-taught Buddhist. We have learned much from each other. My favorite learning is the five remembrances of the Buddha. I find consolation, hope, in accepting these fundamentals of what it is to be born human. What do you find most meaningful in your practice? The five remembrances are wonderful. I actually have a chapter in the book about contemplations of death. My favorite ways of contemplating death, and one of them is reciting the five remembrances, which I won't mention really, except that they're saying, I accept that I will die. There's no way to avoid it. I accept that I will die. And the same for old age and the same for illness and the same for loss. So remembering this and accepting it does bring some kind of peace. and. For me, the question is, what do I find most meaningful in my practice? Well, I think there are a lot of things that help me in my practice. Among them are the idea of not turning away from what's difficult, which is a very strong idea in Buddhism and particularly in Zen practice. If you really face what it is, sometimes it isn't what you thought it was, maybe not quite as difficult, or it turns into something else when you really face it. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Another thing is to be really present in the present moment, which is a very strong teaching of Buddhism and many other practices, and to see maybe in this particular moment that I'm in right now, everything's actually fine. In fact, maybe it's pretty great right now. You can't always say that to yourself, but coming into the present moment can be extremely helpful. 
and then to have compassion for yourself and ask too difficult things of yourself. Forgive yourself for the things that are hard that you don't want to do. Those are some of the things from Buddhism that help me. And one of the things that helps me most of all is the very strong concept that we are not separate from each other, that we're completely interconnected. So I'm not alone in my difficulties, even though I might feel alone sometimes, that we are connected. Thank you, Susan. So one last question before we go to the next reading from Howard Thornton. Please talk a bit more on joyful effort, Viria, and how it shows up as we get older. Does it become more intimate and personal, or does it expand to encompass the greater world, or both? I try breath exercises to bring myself to the intimate personal space that gives me the joyful effort to move forward in the world. Well, it sounds like that is a wonderful way of practicing joyful effort to bring yourself into this personal space and this personal moment. There are other translations of joyful effort. There's enthusiastic energy, there's zeal, there's courage even, there's discipline, meaning just going for it. I think we wouldn't use the word discipline now. It has too many other connotations, actually, but it's a willingness to go for it. It's like a wholeheartedness. So examples of joyful effort. Well, my grandchildren live in Texas. They're far away. I really love them. I really miss them. It's hard not to see them. I don't know if this would qualify as joyful effort, but I just thought, well, what can I do? I made them some Valentine's cards, which I had really fun making. And I found some old photographs of them and I cut out some cardstock paper that I had and I cut out a heart shape on the front page. I put the photograph on the second page inside. So when you looked at the closed card, you saw that person's face coming through the heart and then you opened it up and there was the person in the scene. Anyway, it took effort. I had to measure the paper a couple of times because I got the wrong measurement and I cut the wrong sides hard out that didn't make the face fit right. You know, I had to make an effort to do it. But I was really enthusiastic about it while I was doing it because I thought, oh, this is kind of a cool idea. I don't like this. Instead of just getting discouraged, oh, this is too hard. I can't. My hands are too awkward. The scissors keep going in the wrong place. No, I just did it. And I was certainly wholehearted about doing it. So, I mean, that's just a very small example of what joyful effort might be. I also love the example that you gave in the book of watching an old person inch their way across oh, the yeah. street. And you said that takes virya to get across before the light changes. Yeah. Before we move on to the next reading, I feel like given Patrick's question about your spiritual life, I get the opportunity to share one of my favorite quotes when you talk about the concept of waking up or finding enlightenment. And you say that it comes in little glimpses in everyday moments, you know, rather than like a big aha. And you say, quote, the sunlight falls on everyone it meets without picking and choosing. We can all be lit up. Mm -hmm. I love that. Anyway, should we move on to the second reading? I'll read from the chapter that is called If I Can Still Love. And I'll read the beginning which it says, It's hard to get old. Some things get easier the longer you practice them, like parking the car or peeling a potato. But not getting old, because the longer you do it, the older you get. There are losses, big and small, of physical strength, of proper nouns, of a sense of direction, of keys and reading glasses. 
of bowel regularity, of your driver's license, of hearing, of loved ones. Some of us lose more than others, but everyone loses something. Everything keeps changing, as Buddha repeatedly pointed out. And just when you've adapted to one loss, you can get sideswiped by another. You don't know what's going to happen next. But impermanence is good news, too. Occasionally, things change for the better. Even if you're old and getting older, you can't assume that tomorrow will be worse than today. Something wonderful might happen, quite unexpectedly. Or you might collaborate with reality to make something wonderful happen. You might take a walk in Tilden Park in the hills behind Berkeley and see the first bluebirds you've ever seen in your life, a whole flock of them, out of the blue, flying over a field. This happened to my sister last week, and she's getting old. Each morning, you wake up into an unused day, neither wilted nor dented. We talk about this in the Crohn's group I'm part of, about how an old person's life can still be a fresh life. So keep that in mind. It may feel prudent in our society to hide the physical signs of aging and to bluff our way through our mental losses. The frailties of age are seen as shameful, or at best, the stuff of pitiful jokes on birthday cards. But I want to speak of what's actually happening, not to make you laugh or persuade you to feel sorry for me. I'm looking for a path of dignity, somewhere between bluffing and whining, a straightforward path of this is how it is right now. As I come out of the closet about my losses, especially the cognitive ones, I risk being condescended to or even dismissed. But there are others who struggle with problems similar to mine and who feel alone, particularly in connection with their cognitive decline. It's scary and hard to talk about, so I'm going to talk about it. So then I mentioned I came up with sort of four practices for old people, and I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to mention them briefly. The four practices are observe. This is how it is right now. Adapt. Do it differently from the way you used to do it. Let go. If you can't find a way to do it differently, let it go altogether. And accept. This is how it is right now. So to say just a little bit about those. To observe really means not to turn away from what's difficult. It goes with that idea. To notice what's really going on. Notice how distractible I am or notice my short-term memory loss. Just notice and observe so that you're in a better position to realize what the situation is. Okay, the next one, adapt. That is to adapt to that situation. You've noticed a problem maybe, and now what do you do about it? My short-term memory is very bad, and I've learned that I absolutely have to write things down or I don't remember them. So I'm much better at writing things down. I have a little notebook I carry around with me. When somebody reminds me of something I need to do, I put it in this notebook. There are lots of things like that. I'm so distractible now when I cook, which I love to do. I try to have a rule of not having more than one pot over the heat on the stove, lest the other one burn, but things like that. And then one I wanted to mention that isn't in this chapter, but elsewhere in the book. Old people can also often experience depression. It can be depressing to get old. I mean, people of any age can experience depression. But I have struggled with depression myself in the past. And I want to say that among the other ways of 
adapting to depression and different things you can do to help yourself, that one of the things you can do or you can consider doing that helps many people is to take medication, which I have done and which helped me greatly. And I know that there are people who resist that a lot. And I did it. I resisted it for a long time. And taking an antidepressant actually really made a difference to me. So I just want to throw that out as another kind of adaptation that in a general way, don't be afraid to try out different things that might help you. I don't mean try out all these different medicines or anything. I just mean in any kind of situation, you can be creative and use your imagination and talk to other people and see what do other people do in this situation. Okay, then the third one is let go. And that would be things that you can't actually do differently. Like I've let go of driving at night. I just don't do it anymore. I don't see well enough. You can also let go of low priority things. There's a kind of advantage to letting go. You can let go of the things that you maybe didn't really want to do anyway. Some of those extra chores that you do or some committee you're on that you really wish you weren't on. You can let go of difficult things that aren't right for you. And then there's also an effort to let go of regrets about the past. That's a big letting go that I've worked on, and that's an important one. There's a Buddhist teacher named Ajahn Sumedho who says you can describe Buddhist practice in six words. Let go, let go, let go. The fourth one is to accept. And that's kind of back to the beginning of observe. This is how it is right now. Accept. This is how it is right now. It's just how it is. So this is my reality. Okay, I'm going to agree with reality. That doesn't mean I don't want to change it or it could be made better, but this is what it is. At the end of the chapter, I say, I've been talking about my four practices for old people, and now a fifth practice is jumping out at me. Besides observe, adapt, let go, and accept is love, a verb. Even if you can't do much of anything else, you can love. I think of my father going swimming with his two young sons from his very late second marriage. He had three strikes against him. He was old, he was blind, and his legs were swollen and purple from cancer. He went blind late in his life, just before he had these children, while he was in his 60s. I was middle-aged, visiting him in Cambridge from California, and one day I drove the three of them to the public swimming pool. I was there to help him while his wife was away at a conference, so I helped him with the kids for the weekend. When I was a child, that same father had been sighted and athletic. Now I watched him and the little boys come out of the men's locker room in their swimming trunks and walk across the slippery wet tile at the edge of the pool, my father with crutches. Please don't slip. Please don't fall, I prayed. My father, our father, put down his crutches, turned, and climbed slowly down the ladder into the pool. Determined to be a good dad, he called to the kids to jump in. He winced when his six-year-old crashed into his open arms, but my little brother didn't see it, and my father didn't make a noise. Then, joined by the nine-year-old, they played together, throwing a ball back and forth, my father finding the ball by its splash or its tap on his torso. I'm guessing that his pain was displaced by the joy of swimming with his bouncy boys. It was about a year before he died. Finally, getting old is about practicing love. 
Loving is something an old person can do at least as well as a young one. Bad short-term memory can't keep me from loving. Not knowing how to get to the knitting store can't keep me from loving. What I really want to say is, whatever else I lose, I'll be okay as long as I can love. Thank you. There's so many questions that I have. I just want to go back to what you shared about your experience with depression and thinking about being open to taking antidepressants as an adaptation. It's remarkable to me because I think it's really common for people to think that depression just comes with old age, you know, that it's just normal and it often gets dismissed. People often just think they need to buck up. So to me, it's an incredible lesson in openness and adapting and especially coming from someone who has such a rich spiritual life because we often also think that if we took care of ourselves well enough and we practiced a rich spiritual life then we shouldn't be depressed right right i thought that i thought wow i'm supposed to be a buddhist i guess i'm not a very good buddhist those old monks back in ancient japan they didn't take any depressants and then i thought yeah and they might have been really depressed you spoke of love, and it reminded me of the parts in your book where you talk about staying connected to your grandchildren during the pandemic and when you were at the Zen monastery. And I thought that was a really sweet, sweet part of your book. And I wondered how you model or why you think it's important to model what being old is like for your grandchildren. Well, that's a good question, which I think is really important. And that's one of the things that motivates me. I realized when I became a grandmother, I want to be happy to be alive. And I don't want my grandchild to look at me and say, oh, my God, look at my grandmother. She's moping around and she's so unhappy and it's going to be horrible to get old. No, I want to model dignity and joy and gratitude for my life and the ability to participate, even if you don't have grandchildren. Before we came on, Susie was telling me about an older woman who had a huge influence on her. This woman was modeling for her how much dignity there can be and courage and joy and also humor. We haven't mentioned humor, but I think humor is so helpful and so therapeutic for everybody. Everybody knows young people. You have young people in your life. Young people see you as you move through your days and how you communicate to them what it's like to be old is something they remember and they notice. That goes back to your comment that an old person's life can still be a fresh life. And the way that I interpret that is we're all still learning and growing and changing no matter what age we are. It's not about pretending that everything is fine. Another trap that old people can fall into because it's so embarrassing to be old and not to be able to do things. Honestly, accepting the situation is part of modeling dignity in a way. Being honest with how it is for you. And I mean, we have been talking about hard things, but there is a lot of joy too. There's some studies that I read about that show that people are happiest in their 80s. Hopefully, if you have the essentials of life and you have some companionship, then you can be doing the things that you want to do and really enjoying yourself. There's a lot of benefits to being old. Yes. So I'm told I feel lucky to have so many older adults in my life, parents and grandparents that have modeled just that for me. You are lucky. Well, Howard comments, your writing is so enjoyable to read. I like your sense of humor. Then especially relate to the let go section. 
Your explanation of, I would like to give myself the gift of dying without regret was so inspiring to read, a true gift of compassion to oneself. Thank you for that comment. Yeah. I also want to share, I just watched a great documentary on the Women's Board of the Oakland Museum, White Gloves. It's mostly older women who puts on every year the white elephant sale, and it's a big deal for them, and it gives them much purpose and joy. And one of them said in the interview, I am so lucky. My only responsibility right now is to stay alive. That's good. I just loved it. It was just like, wow, you know, that's a good way to look at it. There are some more questions from Donna. How have you dealt with forgiving yourself, dealing with regrets? Well, there are a couple of things in my life that I regret. I realized that this is weighing me down. One time I was actually sitting, meditating, supposedly, and thinking about things I regretted, which is exactly what you're supposed to do when you're meditating. But anyway, that's what was happening. I was thinking, oh, why did I do that? I was running a line on myself. And I suddenly had this really, really powerful image of myself. And I saw myself as a bent over person carrying these long chains behind me. And I was trudging around long, dragging these chains behind me that were my regrets that were slowing me down and weighing me down. And they were just horrible chains. And I suddenly said, drop the chains of regret, drop the chains of regret. And I sat up straight and I had this mental image of letting them go. It was just a sort of magical moment that happened, I think, from realizing how heavy they were. And I thought, I can just drop it let go. And it worked. I was actually having physical therapy at that time. I was going regularly to Kaiser for physical therapy for some problem I was having with my neck and back. And she had suggested I do some yoga earlier, which I also was doing. But she asked me to walk down the hall and she would watch me walk. So I walked down the hall and I walked back and she said, wow, you're standing up so straight. You must really have been doing that yoga. And I didn't tell her, no, I dropped the chains of regret. <laughs> but that's what it was. It made a difference in how tall I could stand up. What strikes me about that story and so much of what you shared is it seems like the first step in even noticing many of the things you've mentioned is that it necessitates being quiet or mm -hmm. still or listening. I think that's where your Zen practice comes in, too, that takes great observation and ability yeah. to listen. And be still. Now, listening is good. I definitely don't want to say that you have to meditate. You have to be a Buddhist and do meditation or anything like that. I don't think that's essential. I think you can have a deep spiritual life without that. But I do think for old people, particularly, you need to slow down. And it's hard for me to slow down because I have a lot of things I want to do. And I go rushing around from one thing to the next. And I have sort of a bad case of foams syndrome or fear of missing something. Slowing down is so important and so helpful because you get to notice what's going on. Yeah. And it seems like you have to be courageous to slow down in our society. That's a good point. Yeah. I saw a bumper sticker on somebody's car on the freeway, and it said old and slow, which I thought was good warning that, yeah, I'm going a little slow for you, and I know it's bugging you, but I mean, it isn't safe to go too slow. But anyway, I like that <laughs> old and slow as a definition. There's that question about what adventures are around the next corner for you. 
Oh, that's a good question. Well, some of my adventures are actually in reading and studying things, which I can do no matter how frail I am. But first, I'll mention one adventure that I am about to have, which would have been an adventure at any time in my life. I'm going to teach for a week at a monastery in Apennine Mountains in Italy. And it's a remote Zen monastery in Italy, which I went to once years ago. And it's like a Shangri-La, hidden away, amazing beautiful place, flying me there to teach for a week. And I have to say, I feel a little bit bad about carbon emissions, but I am going, and that's an adventure. What I do when I fly is I make a donation to a green environmental organization. I always sort of tax myself every time I do something like flying, which I do less and less. But anyway, that's one adventure. But I'm also giving a series of talks in my Zen community about time, which is something that I'm really interested in and curious about. And so it might seem like an odd adventure, but I'm just reading wildly about time and astrophysicists and all kinds of weird cosmological things about time. And I'm learning amazing things about time. And it's so fascinating. And this for me is also an adventure because I'm just so curious. So I'm having fun with that. I'm sensing a lot of virya. Yes. Howard comments, I enjoyed reading the story of your trip to Italy to teach the hidden lamb oh, yeah. stories. The walk to Papagazzano and your realization there was so beautifully told. That's the same place that I was just talking about. Oh, yes. i just curious, what are the hidden lamp stories? That's another book of mine that I did with another woman, and it's called The Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women. And it's a collection of a hundred koans and teaching stories about women from Buddhist time to the present time, women teachers who have been forgotten in the Buddhist literature. I made this collection with another woman and we had a hundred current women Buddhist teachers. Each one wrote a commentary on one of these old stories. So it's a nice collection of something that really needed to be brought together. I'm proud and was lucky to be a part of this. And that's why I was invited to Italy to teach from that book. And the reason I'm going back to Italy is because it's just been published in Italian, so they're celebrating the Italian edition. Congratulations. What a wonderful achievement. It's great. Another reminder of all the great books you have written, I also loved your book, which you mentioned at the beginning. This is getting old. This was just, again, with so much humor. I think I have also graduated to your current book from <laughs> This is Getting Old by now. I wanted to mention that Sue's book is available at Pegasus locally or wherever you buy your books. And just looking ahead for us, we'll have our next H-In in June, which is an in-person learning event all about the human and animal bond and its health benefits. I think another joyful practice. So thank you again. It's time to conclude today's conversation. Thank you so much, Rachel and Sue, for really an insightful conversation, which I think has resonated with many of us. Thank you. Thanks to everybody for coming. Thanks, Rachel, for all your help with this. Such an honor. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. 
We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.